Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We have something special planned for you this evening, but before we dig in, there's a few people I'd like to acknowledge. First, with submissions pouring in like tentacled eldritch horrors writhing through a tear in space and time, we've brought in a pair of pinch hitters to help out. A couple of names that will no doubt sound very familiar. Please join me in extending a very warm welcome to Brian Rollins and Summer Brooks. We're excited to have you step behind the curtain with us, Brian and Summer. I'd also like to send a huge thank you to our newest patrons, Brad Jacobs, Sierra Froon, and Drew Rogers. Your incredible generosity is responsible for threatening the sanity of thousands of listeners, and we couldn't be more thankful. As I mentioned, we have something very special for you this evening. Tonight, we'll share the winners of our first-ever Flash Fiction contest, which we held back at the beginning of the summer. I have to say, for a first kick at the can, I was absolutely blown away, not only by how many submissions we received, but by the quality of the stories, too. We'll get to those shortly. But with a couple weeks' hiatus behind us, I thought I'd take this chance to take a nice little weekend jaunt across the Atlantic Ocean for a tour of a plague-themed destination. Plague, of course, being the theme of our flash fiction contest. The word plague isn't one that's really used to describe illness very often anymore, but I can't help but imagine that if the pandemic we're experiencing now had happened a hundred years ago, that's exactly what we'd call it. Of course, with medical advances comes the ability to better identify and classify disease. And we no longer lump terrifying widespread illness into simplistic categories like plague. Not to mention, history has given us some pretty strong medical associations with the word plague already. The most common, which has probably popped into your mind already, is the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague, or Black Death, 
earned its nickname as a result of the lymph nodes of its victims turning black due to bacterial infection. It was a ravenous, horrible disease that could kill within three to four days of manifesting symptoms. All told, at its height, it claimed a third of Europe's population, about 250 million people. Of course, it's hard to pinpoint an exact number, because the Black Death never truly started or ended, just ebbed and flowed. But there's one location still notorious for its historical connection to the plague, a little island in northern Italy known as Povelia. Located in the lagoon that separates the island of Lido and the city of Venice, Povelia played an important role in the protection of Venetian waters. Forts were built on the island, and it served as the first point of contact for ships looking to enter Venice from the sea. But when several of those ships were found to be carrying those infected with the plague, the island was set up as first a temporary and then a more permanent quarantine zone. If you lived in or around Venice and had the misfortune of contracting the plague, not only did you have an excruciating death awaiting you, you'd also be taken from any kind of real comfort or care and dumped on the island among countless other living corpses to wait out your final days after which your body would be cremated as quickly as possible. There's no clear count on how many people were shipped over to Pavalia to die, and considering the high infection rate of the Black Death, I'm not sure I'd even want to guess. With so many people dying daily and then being cremated, and with nowhere else to put their remains, it's rumored that the topsoil of the island is as much as 50% human ash. With that kind of death and misery literally infused into the very earth itself, it's no wonder the island has a reputation as being exceptionally haunted. But having hundreds or thousands of plague deaths isn't the only reason for haunting either. So, picture this. You're the Italian government of the early 1900s. You've got an island suffused with a history of horrendous pain, suffering, and death. How do you rehabilitate a place like that? Create a park? Maybe a nice memorial garden? Well, if you're the Italian public health office of the 1920s, you, of course, do the only logical thing and build an asylum. Because nothing brings cheer and happiness to a dreary charnel house than the confinement and torture of the mentally ill. And yes, the Povelia Island Insane Asylum was everything you'd expect from that kind of facility in the early 1900s. Stark, cold cells. Forcible confinement. Generally inhumane living conditions. And don't forget about the grisly lobotomies and forced unethical medical testing. One doctor who worked at the asylum was particularly curious, shall we say. He was well known for his invasive medical practices that treated patients more like lab rats than human beings. In particular, he seemed to have a fascination with the abundance of spirit sightings among the residents of the hospital. Patients would often report seeing strange figures that passed through walls or disappeared into thin air. And they could hear wailing late at night, too. Ethereal, otherworldly voices that echoed through the halls with a timber no living human could produce. Of course, being a medical doctor and a man of science, his treatment for those sorts of maladies was a simple old standby a lobotomy. But as he continued to, um, cure his patients of their ghostly sightings, it became harder and harder for him to deny that there truly was something paranormal happening on the island. He himself began to hear the voices. 
began to catch glimpses of wispy forms out of the corner of his eye, things he could neither fully explain or entirely deny. Rather than seek similar help for himself, he simply doubled down on his efforts. More lobotomies. Giving lobotomies, after all, is one thing, but getting one? Nah. As his mind began to slip, he became more and more gruesome and ruthless in his methods. The more lobotomies and experiments he performed, though, the more the spirits began to torment him. Until one night, utterly unhinged, he climbed to the top of the old bell tower, one of the only remaining structures from the island's days as a fort, and threw himself down to the cobbled streets below. The asylum was closed in 1968, and since then hasn't seen a whole lot of action. On a few occasions, there have been attempts to build on the island, but every time the work has been abandoned, often with little explanation. On a recent occasion, a crew was sent over to begin restoration of part of the old hospital on the island. Mere days into the work, they abruptly left the job site and refused to go back. Not a single member of the crew would discuss what happened, or what drove them to flee so hastily. But the underlying fear of the place was palpable whenever the subject was brought up. The island remains abandoned and closed to the public, but that doesn't stop curious tourists and thrill-seekers from sneaking over to explore for themselves. It's a trip that no doubt seems like an exciting and adventurous excursion off the beaten tourist path, but one that many who travel there live to regret. In 2016, a group of five tourists from Colorado managed to convince a Venice water taxi to take them over to the island. No doubt the thrill of exploring one of Europe's most haunted locations and the bragging rights of spending a night there, was hard to pass up. As they began to explore the island, night settled down over the abandoned place like a heavy cloak. And suddenly, their light-hearted adventure began to turn dark. They felt as though they were being followed. And that sensation only grew as the darkness deepened. They began to hear strange sounds. And that lurking presence? Well, it no longer felt like it was just following them. It felt like it was hunting. It's not entirely clear what happened to the tourists, what they saw or experienced on Povelia. But their terror was real enough. Their screams were so loud and blood-curdling that a passing sailboat out for a moonlight cruise had no choice but to contact the authorities. The five tourists eventually had to be rescued by Italian firefighters, and, aside from what they must have been pressured to tell the authorities, the group refused to talk about what happened to them on the island. There have been other visitors to Pavalia, too, and all of them seem to have similar stories. An overwhelming feeling of being watched that begins the second they step foot on the island, and grows the more time they spent there, turning to a sense of hateful revulsion and trespass as darkness sets in. Some have also claimed feeling invisible hands scratching at them, or reported being shoved into walls by unseen forces. So, while infection from the Black Plague may no longer be a threat on the island of Povelia, a shadow of disease still clearly lingers deep within the fabric of the island itself. A disease that doesn't so much consume the body as it does the mind. An infection, I'd say, that's certainly not worth the price of admission. And now... For the piece you've no doubt been waiting for. The winners of our Flash Fiction Contest. 1,000 Words or Less of Disturbing Darkness Since it's been a while, 
it's probably worth a quick jog to the old memory, and a little background on our muse. Our prompt for this contest was a visual one, an 1898 painting by Swiss artist Arnold Boeklin, titled simply Plague. I've placed a link to the image in our show notes so you can see for yourself, but let me try to describe it for you. It's a strange, unsettling image of a pale, emaciated rider, clothed all in black, atop a scaled creature with dark, leathery wings. As the creature swoops through the streets of a medieval town, its rider swings a menacing scythe. Painted primarily with the greens, grays, and browns of decay, there's one notable exception. A woman in a bright red dress, prostrate across a still figure in white that lies on the cobbled street in the foreground. In his paintings, Boeklin had an equal obsession with myths and legends and the nightmares of war, pestilence, and death, a pairing that permeates every brushstroke of plague. His unsettling work has influenced many other artists as well, from surrealists like Max Ernst and Salvador Dali to the strange alien works of H.R. Geiger. It seemed a fitting image for these troubled times, and it clearly struck a chord with many of you, children of the night. It was a tough job narrowing down the disease-ridden entries you submitted, but we've ended up with three runners-up in no particular order and one winner, all of which we'll share with you tonight. Our first runner-up is a tale which comes to us from John Waite, a little story about the infectious nature of art itself, a tale he calls Exhibit Label. Hosted on the opening and closing night of the first public exhibition of Plague by Gaspar Kane, a copy of Arnold Boeckling's Plague, as part of the Mapleton Historical Society's Mapleton Retrospective, 200 Years of the Arts. Gaspar Kane, 1880-1928. Plague, 1928. Tempera and possibly other materials on wood, on loan from the Mason Collection. This replica of Arnold Boeckling's Plague, 1898, was first purchased in 1928 by Ruth Esless Mason, daughter of Rupert Mason, founder of Mason Lumber, as part of her collection of symbolist works. Although she did have authentic minor pieces by Gustave Moreau and Jan Turop, of her ten collected works, six have been deemed replicas or pastiches. Whether Mason was aware the works were not authentic is unclear. She left no records, and she died on the day she received Cain's plague. The fact that she paid $800, equal to about $12,000 today, for the painting suggests she thought it was real. Kane's copy is remarkable for its fidelity to the original. While further study is warranted, a close examination seems to show that even the smallest of Oakley's unusual assortment of brushstrokes and details is recreated. For instance, note the luminous figure in White's right hand. The very small detail of it seemingly having come to rest as a fist is almost obscured by the way Boeckling blends the fist with the veil and the stones. See the museum catalog for an enlarged side-by-side -side comparison of Kane's copy with the original. Kane has also captured exactly the combination of muted, muddy, and sickly pastel colors of Boeckling's original. No doubt, this subdued palette with its translucent colors and lines only emphasizes the solidity of the black used to portray the wings of the creature that carries death, death's tunic, and death's hair and eyes. Cain has exactly captured the dominating and evil nature of this black, most especially in death's stone-like eyes, 
While death's defiant and threatening pose and glowing sage skin seem so fearfully alive, his eyes cast to heaven are a grotesque void. One cannot talk about the colors of the original without paying special attention to the red dress on the prostrated female figure in the lower half of the painting. Despite her relatively small size, some say her dress dominates the painting. It is in the nature of this red dress that Kane's work most differs from the original, perhaps. While Boeckling's work is notable for its bold and symbolic subject matter, Kane's reproduction has a reputation that some say surpasses the original work's grotesque imagery. Caspar Kane was a gifted forger, replicating many works from the symbolist movement and selling them off to private collectors and even on two occasions to major institutions. Little is known of Kane's life except for details found in the artist's journal, which was discovered among the ruins of his studio, which was destroyed in a fire. The journal is badly burned, the majority of it illegible. Kane's copy of Plague would probably not be of interest on its own if it were not for the short story A Taste of the Plague, 1969, by Greg Lewis, 1928-1969, who draws upon fragments of Kane's journal to craft his equally grotesque and symbolic story, see the exhibit catalog for passages from Lewis's story. The story's notoriety revived interest in Kane's life and works. Lewis's story draws on three comments that are legible in Kane's journal. On one page near the end of the journal, Kane writes, A true taste of the horrors that result. A series of burns obscures the portion immediately following these words. See journal replica below. Further down the same page, the following phrase is legible. So alive, only one source seems viable. On the back of the same page, only three words are legible. Just one taste. Scholars are divided about whether these phrases refer to Kane's replica of Plague, another piece, or some other topic or topics altogether. This ambiguity did not stop Lewis from taking license with them in his own work. In A Taste of the Plague, Lewis imaginatively recreates the weeks in which Kane produces the painting and its delivery to Ruth Esselis Mason. Lewis details Kane's transformation from an outwardly staid man into one driven by mania, subject to odd behaviors. Lewis suggests that after creating an exact duplicate of Boeckling's red tempera paint, Kane makes one addition, blood, taken from his own tongue, which he slices with his palette knife. As if this were not gruesome enough, Lewis further suggests that Kane's practicing of the occult, which seems to be suggested by the as-yet untranslated and only partially visible symbols that also appear throughout Kane's journal, results in the painting being cursed. The curse is what ends Ruth Estless Mason's life. In reality, Mason died of natural causes, according to the autopsy performed at the time. Although the exact nature of the curse outlined in Lewis's short story is vague, its main effect is that some viewers of the painting, those especially susceptible to color, are overcome by a violent, undeniable urge to lick the paint of the red dress. Looking closely at the painting, you can see just how alluring such an act would be, as the vibrant red, with its subtle variations, is indeed luscious. Once you have tasted the metallic paint of the dress, you are stricken. You fall victim to blurred vision and hysteria, loudly gibbering nonsense words, before your shivering body collapses to the floor. Blood drips from your eyes, but you are paralyzed and unable to wipe these red tears away as your heart clenches. We are pleased to be the first museum in the country. Ah, the unusual work paired with of the journal entry. Special thanks to the estate of Greg Lunitz for Brackness his story in the catalog of the Exemgenis. Plasma Tanika area contributors the bank of Miglis Bau. Wahaha Magista Kika blah 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 That was John Waite's exhibit label, as read by a new voice here on Tales to Terrify. Evan Morgenstern. Thank you, Evan. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Our second runner-up story comes from Frauke Uhlenbrook, who spins a tale of parenthood and the darkness that we sometimes mask. Join me, children of the night, for Skin Suits. It wore the skin of a man, but it was a creature of death. Stop it, David. Mom is scared. Julie, who came to sleep in the big bed two nights in a row already? I tried to joke, but it came out wrong. After months without our usual distractions and purposes, we were on edge. Even without our daughter's selfish, hot body between us, I hadn't slept well lately. Juliet looked hurt, add a shame to my endless list of destructive emotions. I can't help it, Mom! Juliet shouted, pushed her chair back, and left the kitchen, probably to stare at her iPad that evil Mom made her leave in the living room during dinner. It should have been David's turn to go after her. After all, he had started telling one of his stupid ghost stories on her request, but he kept eating his spaghetti. Fuck you, I mouthed, and went after our daughter. Rage was always close by these days. I found Juliet in her room. Come on, Julie, I sighed trying to suppress my anger at my husband whose spaghetti weren't getting cold, who was going to leave his plate on the counter, who was going to roll his eyes if I told him to please just put the plate in the dishwasher, just once. I wanted to hear the story, Juliet whined. It'll give you bad dreams. It's just a story. I'm not scared of stories. The dreams are about real stuff. We're fine. You're fine. I couldn't even convince myself. They put people into plastic bags. They use a metal claw to shove tubes down people's throats, and then they die all alone. I saw it on the news. Honey, I don't want a tube, and I don't want to die. She shook me off. I want Dad, and I want to hear the story. Well, fine, then. I left her room. 
She wants your fucked up story, I hissed at David in the kitchen, sat down emphatically, and continued eating my dinner. David left the room. It wore the skin of a man, but it was a creature of death. It was a half-assed story. I had heard him tell it for the first time when we were sixteen-year-old goths stoned on someone's parents' patio. I was in love with him, so poetic, so in touch with his emotions. Imagine a small town, he had said, and I had probably thought it incredibly atmospheric. In it there lived a man, a husband, a father. One day the man left the small town on an errand. He returned at dusk, walking along the open road between two towns, when he noticed a shape blending in with the rising fog and the willow trees that lined the road. A wavering figure, gray and decaying, hollows for eyes. It lurked by the side of the road in the twilight. The man walked faster to leave the frightening illusion behind. He tried to tell himself that it was just a shadow among the willows cast by the full moon. But then he saw the gleam of its scythe. The creature stepped into the road and it slashed the man's skin open before he knew what was happening. By the light of the fire pit, and with my perception slightly altered, I had watched how David drew his fingernail down the center of his face. I hallucinated a bleeding gash. His skin peeled away until I was certain the fire's flickering shadows on his face were white bone. The creature stepped into the man's skin, and the raw body was left behind. The creature wore the man's skin, and it went to live in the man's village, fooling everyone, even his wife, even his children, until its hunger came again. Once the hunger comes, no one will live, and after it feeds, it moves on. When the hunger comes, it steps out of its skin gray and decaying, hollows for eyes, with ghostly limbs and nails sharp as a razor. It will come for you, and it will eat you. Then it moves on to find its next skin. What of the skin body of the traveler, you ask? The body started to decay in a ditch. It turned gray and gaunt, with hollows for eyes, but soon it sensed a dormant hunger. It rose and stalked the country until it found another lonely traveler. The creatures, so many now, haunt lonely places. They wear our skins as suits and live among us until the hunger comes. And so it continues until we can't be sure anymore who is only wearing their skin as a suit. I heard Juliet giggling and shouting, Gross! David laughed too. I cleared the table and loaded the dishwasher. David and Juliet retired to their iPads. I heard the overlapping sounds of Animal Crossing. I snapped the light off in the kitchen and went to my corner of the living room to stare at my device. At some point, the perfunctory, Bedtime, Juliet, was spoken and went ignored for another hour. And at some later point, the lights went off and we all finally got to be alone in our heads while we slept. Mommy? What? Even when I was sleepy, the raw anger that I always hid underneath my skin suit was there. I forced it down. I can't sleep. David was snoring peacefully next to me. Juliet's silhouette had appeared in the doorway of our bedroom, backlit by the blue nightlight in the hall. Was it Dad's stupid story? The dark figure in the doorway stayed silent for a moment and swayed slightly, as if moved by the draft of the air conditioner. Then it spoke again. I'm hungry.
That was Frauke Uhlenbruch's Skin Suits, as read by our own Julia Zellman. You've heard of her, but this is the first time you've heard from her. Thank you so much, Julia. The last of our three runners-up comes to us from Erica Rupert, a story about the passing of a heavy burden to the next generation, titled The Wind, The Sand. Scales slide across each other with a sound like sand blowing over stone. My sister cries, somewhere above me, somewhere higher than I can see. My eyes feel as if sand blows across them. My vision is blurred. I am not breathing. I rise and wipe the grit from my face, my clouded eyes. My wet mouth. I shake the dust of the street from my hair and my skirts. I walk. Above me, wind cuts across the sky with the sound like leathery wings beating. I open my mouth, hoping that some of the wind will fill me, that some of the beating rhythm will restore me. It does not. My sister's crying becomes a distant whimper all around me in the dusty air. I walk away from it, down the empty narrow street, past the tall city walls, into the wide, empty desert. I wipe the blowing sand away from my eyes, and I can see again. The city is smaller than it felt from inside its walls, the desert far, far more vast. In the sky, beside the pale rind of the moon, a tiny figure dips and glides. Even at this distance, I can hear its scales click against each other as it turns. The wind fills my open mouth with sand and dust. It fills my throat, trickles down into my lungs, my guts. But I am not breathing. All its weight can do is anchor me here. I walk now, more slowly. I do not tire. I do not thirst, even as the wide desert teases the last moisture from my mouth from my eyes. Even dry as dust, I move steadily forward. The wind follows me now. Above me, in the pale sky, I see the long, twining figure cut circles in the air, sweeping closer, sweeping down. It is a beast, a serpent. It cuts the air with long wings, that make the sound of a whip crack as they beat. Over its narrow head, like a corona, hangs a sharp slice of silver, an echo of the moon. Scales scrape against my hands as I draw the serpent down, its wings beating slowly against the heated air, stirring clouds of dust that dissipate above us. It lands beside me. Its long neck lifts from the sand. Its long jaws open in a hiss that is not breath. It does not breathe either. Cradled between its wings is a figure as dry and breathless as I am. Its hands on the serpent's neck. Its head turning this way and that. Searching. It cannot find me, though, as it casts about. It has no eyes. It cannot see. 
I let the wind and dust wheeze out of my mouth, and its blind face turns to me as a flower seeks the sun. I step forward and put my hand over its hand on the serpent's neck and help it climb down onto the soft and moving sand. I hold its shoulder so that it faces me, study its blind face, peer into the caverns of its lost eyes. It sags, dust drifting from its dry mouth, sifting off its tight, dry skin. It is not who it used to be. It is not who I remember, who I once mourned. I ease it down onto the sand. The wind passes over us, blowing sand across its still face, filling its empty eye sockets and open mouth, erasing its detail beneath the swallowing dust. I pull the long scythe free of its dry hand. I feel the weight of it. I study the dull gleam. Already my eyes are dimmer than they were before I took the blade. The serpent twines its way to me, and I mount it, scales catching and tearing my dusty skirts. Its body is cool beneath me as it lifts us into the sky. My hand is on its neck. My hand is on the scythe's handle. We soar among the clouds of dust among the blowing scrape of sand. Already my eyes are polished and worn by the sand that flies in them. I steer the serpent by the pressure of my hand, back to the city, over its high walls. While I still have sight, I must take my turn, cull the masses, reap the harvest. I cannot seek my home until my eyes are worn away and I am blind, just as my mother before me. Far below, I can still hear my sister's cries. I hope she will have stopped her grieving by the time these scaled wings bring me to her again. That was Erica Rupert's The Wind, The Sand, as read by me. Which brings us to our final story, and the winner of Tales to Terrify's first flash fiction contest, Nicola Capron and her tale about a woman's desperate fight to save a loved one from the ravaging scourge. A story, like its muse, simply titled Plague. Plague is a dragon which breathes out sickness. It soars over the town, bathing all in the shadow of black wings, exhaling a steady stream of pestilence. I stand on the corner, holding the side of my skirt up to keep the stones inside, and watch its flight with burning eyes. My only company is the bodies in the streets. A young lady walking the streets after curfew, how scandalous. What will the people think? Miriam would grab me by the shoulders and shake, 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 until the stones ran out of the pocket of my dress, and I had no choice but to let her lead me home. But Miriam lies still in bed, choking on her lungs. She can't stop me from picking up the first stone. As the dragon flaps closer, I lean back, Take aim and let fly. The rock flies up 
my aim is true. But the beast does not even notice. Throwing rocks at death. What a joke. I laugh to myself. A strained, strangled little sound. And grab another stone. Plague's wings rattle like bones. Like those last, harsh breaths nobody wants to hear. Covering my ears. Holding my pocket of stones. Throwing them. I can only do two of the three. So I grit my teeth as pain lances through my skull and my spine tries its best to climb out through my back. It's only physical, only the involuntary thrashing of a body too close to death. It can't stop me either. Wind rips at my hair. The gold thread is coming off my sleeves. The dragon is getting closer. My snarl is lost in the mummified air. How dare it? How dare it? The dragon doesn't know the beauty of Miriam's smile. It's never seen her stand under the white plum blossoms, pink-cheeked and laughing. It's never tried weaving those flowers into her golden hair while she tried to dodge its hands and scolded it for vanity. It's never held her hand in the dark where no one would see and dreamed awkwardly, tentatively, of brushing its lips against hers. The beast is nearly on top of me now. The sky is nothing but wings. I shout every curse I know at it, hurling my stones with all the force I can muster. This thing hasn't spent a second of thought on Miriam. How can it take her away from someone who has? It can't. I won't let it. I won't let it take her. With a sound like breaking bone, the dragon dives. I have no stones left. I bare my teeth and raise my empty fists to greet it. Plague's head is flat and broad, like an arrowhead. Clouds of thick smog rise from its huge eye sockets, its shriveled alligator lips, its wide, flaring nostrils. Something wet rattles in the back of its throat. Upon its back sits a withered corpse in sackcloth and braids, dry face warped into a howl. I throw myself forward on aching feet. As the dragon passes overhead, I seize one of its wings. Thin flesh breaks apart under my fingers. Dull red rains down over me. Shards of bone shred my dress like blades. Maggots begin crawling up my arm. It doesn't matter. The dragon is still flying toward the house where Miriam rests. I run after it, shouting, threatening, pleading. It does not hear me. Its ears have gone to rot. When I limp home, my dress stained with old, dry blood, Miriam is gone. That was the winner of our flash fiction contest, Plague, by Nicola Caprin, as read by Emily Strand. Thank you, Emily, and congratulations, Nicola, and all of our runners-up. Thanks again to everyone who entered the contest. We hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more contests like this down the road. We had so much fun going through all of the entries and bringing them to your ears. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, 
why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we infect your mind and soul with more Tales to Terrify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.